Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you uh, to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is our reading tonight. And verse 17 to 19. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Also, if you want to turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 930, chapter 19 of the Law of God. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, and then page 930. Tonight we're going to talk about the Christian and the law of God. It's actually one of my favorite chapters, subjects, um, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So hopefully that enthusiasm will carry over. Let's, uh, let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness in Jesus Christ, and we pray that the Spirit, Lord, would be with us. Uh, we need your help, O oh God. You are our God. We are your people the sheep of your pasture. Now bless us, lead us to green pastures and still waters that we might be well fed tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Well, there's been for many years, even maybe centuries, confusion about the relationship of the law of God to the Christian. What are we supposed to think about the law um, and and what it is to be a New Testament believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the Old Testament old in the sense that it's uh, to be relegated to the Salvation Army? We need to get rid of it and just stay in the New Testament. There are Christians who believe that. Um, if, If the law of God has any relevance, how do we discern between what's relevant today and what has been abrogated? What's been Uh, fulfilled by Jesus Christ and no longer is operative for our day-to-day living. How do we know? Where where do we go and find out about this? Well, we want to talk about this tonight. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Sometimes even just mentioning the law of God causes people to get tense because they fear that the pastor is running off the rails and no longer believes in some kind of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. There's some kind of self-righteousness or law-righteousness he's working in here somehow. 
And so, you know, it's sometimes, uh, in some contexts, it's very hard to preach on any of God's commandments. I remember one time I was at a, a Baptist minister's meeting and I was invited to speak at, and I preached on the fourth commandment. Uh, to them. And and uh, I think one of them just thought, oh no, you shouldn't be teaching on this at all. He came up and spoke to me afterward, uh, after the meeting was over, um, about it. And I think it was because he was of the view that the, the commandments are, you know, we don't, we don't, that's the Old Testament. We don't deal with that anymore. Um, now, let me just say, most of the people were very appreciative in the room who, who uh, heard that message. I don't want to make it sound like everybody was of that view. I think it was particular to that one man. But um, there's a lot of misunderstandings uh, with God's law even today. Now, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to do here is he's really, I believe, and I, you know, Calvin is of this view, he's really taking a, a scraper, if you will, to the barnacles that have encrusted themselves Onto the law of God, and that he, what Jesus is doing is he is taking uh, an instrument and he's trying to get those barnacles that you see on boats sometimes that have been sitting in the harbor and and are encrusted, and he is trying to uh, remove those barnacles because what had happened by the time of Jesus's earthly ministry is that the law had been corrupted by those in religious authority with so many of the traditions of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees that Jesus was having to explain in the Sermon on the Mount that he was not overthrowing the law of God in his life, in his ministry, in his teaching, in his preaching, but he was getting to the essence of the law of God. What Jesus was doing was he was seeking to overthrow all the encrusted traditions that had been added to the law or even supplanted the law of God. John Calvin notes that Jesus here uh, takes the the former covenant and confirms and ratifies it. If you see, see in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. What is he doing? I, he said, I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. That I am here to bring about the fulfillment of what the law and the prophets were always pointing us to. Calvin, again, is, uh, says that Christ is refuting the slander that was brought against him in that he was overthrowing the law and the prophets. One commentator translates these words as, I am come not to subvert, but to ratify. Spurgeon, listen to Charles Spurgeon, 19th century English Baptist minister, says, quote, the law of God he established, that is Jesus established, and confirmed. Our king has not come to abrogate the law, but to confirm and reassert it. Herman Ritterboss says this, Quote, no antithesis between principles of the law of Moses and the Sermon on the Mount. John Murray, uh, Jesus says this, quote, Jesus refers to the function of validating and confirming the law and the prophets. A.W. Pink 
says that Jesus confirmed the authority of the law of God. He established it and he reinforced it. Now, the Pharisees were guilty of abolishing the law. If there was anybody who was abolishing the law, it was the Pharisees of that day. They were diluting the law with the traditions of men. Look with me at Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1 and following. Matthew chapter 15. <clears throat> and verse 1 and following. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So here, boys and girls, Jesus sits down to the dinner here, and the Pharisees are accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking the, notice it says, the tradition of the elders, <clears throat> because they're not washing their hands when they eat bread. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, why do you, speaking to the Pharisees, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? <clears throat> for God said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. That Jesus is quoting back at them that they're saying, oh, you don't have to obey that commandment. You know, if you just give it, the money, the proceeds to God, don't worry about that. And he says, by this, you've invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus went on. He said, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as, listen to this, as doctrines, the precepts of men. So if anybody was abolishing the law of God, it was not the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were the ones who, by their traditions, were obscuring the true teaching of the law. And that's why Jesus, many times in the Sermon on the Mount, had to say, you have heard it said, but what? I say unto you, da-da-da-da-da-da, you have heard it said, you know, uh, to love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. That is, Jesus was getting at the very heart of the teaching of God's commandments. He was, he was seeking to, again, just uh, sand off all those false teachings that had encrusted themselves upon the law of Moses. Moses was pointing to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The enemies of Christ were the ones who were not upholding the law of God. Now, <clears throat> um, much of the church, unfortunately, today has abolished the law and the prophets. Um, we need pastors and churches that are going to teach the whole Bible. Um, we, we need pastors and teachers who are going to teach the whole counsel of, of the Scriptures here. Um, now, what does it mean here when Jesus says, let's go back here to our text, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill what this means here is that the law was pointing us to Jesus. And then Jesus, we find one who was obedient 
in word, thought, and deed to the law. That is, the first thing we have to realize in, in Jesus fulfilling the law is that Jesus justifies us. Jesus' life, death, and resurre- resurrection is what makes us righteous in the sight of God. Here's the problem. The problem is that the law is righteous, but we are not. We are sinners. And, but every time somebody is born into this world, they are born by nature under the covenant of works that was broken by their first parents, Adam and Eve. And so our condition before the law is always, from the moment we're born, is one of guilt before God and before the law. So the first thing that we have to understand is that Jesus Christ comes into the world as the eternal Son of God who becomes a man, and he doesn't have that sin nature you and I had. Therefore, when he is born, he is born blameless before the law. And as Jesus lives out his life from infancy that we think of at Christmas time, all the way to the time he died on the cross and said, it is finished, he lived that blameless life. We haven't gotten there in Hebrews yet, but we're going to get to a verse that says he was holy, blameless, and undefiled. Jesus was theologically what we call impeccable. That means he's without any uh, sin. We theologians speak about the impeccability of Christ. Jesus was without sin. So what this means is that Jesus fulfills the obligations of the law as the last Adam. Jesus is the second perfect man. The first perfect man, your father, he did uh, fall. And we fell in him and with him. But Christ is the second perfect man. He fulfills the law, first of all, by coming into the world, being born under that law, and fulfilling all the obligations of it for us. That's why Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, And you say, well, how does our righteousness surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, first of all, it's by placing your trust in Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, when you believe in Jesus Christ, God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is way, way better than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. But what we're saying is don't trust in yourself that you're righteous. Trust in Jesus, and Jesus will give you the righteousness that you need. Jesus will give you freely the righteousness that he demands and that he's going to expect on the day of judgment. You don't want to appear before God in your own righteousness. You and I cannot stand. Psalm 130, O Lord, you know, if if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? Who Who at Covenant Presbyterian Church can stand before an almighty, infinite, eternal God with fiery eyes that look upon the very depths of our soul, and be safe. Only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us will keep us safe on that great and terrible day. So that's the first way that Jesus fulfills uh, this law. His active obedience, his life is your righteousness. Look with me in chapter 19 of the Law of God, section 1. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to a personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. 
100% perfect obedience was required. <clears throat> Promised life unto the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. But look at section 2. This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. A little bit of recapitulation there. And written in two tablets. The first four commandments containing our duty towards God and the other six are duty to man. So notice here two things. If you are going to have eternal life, notice what section one of the Westminster Confession is saying. If you want eternal life, you have to have 100% perfect, absolute obedience to the law of God. That's the requirement to go to heaven. That's the requirement to be in heaven. 100% perfect, absolute obedience. Adam had it. Adam lost it. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who came as a second Adam <clears throat> to give that righteousness to us by his grace, to earn it and merit it by his life, and then to pay the penalty to atone for our failure to have that righteousness and to give that righteousness to us to be justified by the resurrection of Christ. Look at section 3 in our uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. Besides, beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers instructions of moral duties, which are ceremonial laws now abrogated under the New Testament. All right, so here we're getting it a little more complicated. This is where it gets a little difficult, a little tricky, and let me see if I can explain it. The law of God, theologically speaking, systematic theologians tend to divide the law into three distinctions, all right? The first is what we've been speaking of, namely the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. What is God's will for our life? God's will for our life is that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. In these two things hang what? All the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. So if you want to know the sum of it, there it is. How do you break that down? What does that look like? Well, God breaks it down, those two great commandments, into the Ten Commandments. The first four being the greatest commandment, the latter six being the second greatest commandment. However, theologians make distinctions between different types of laws in the Old Covenant. The moral law, which is summarized in the two great commandments and then explained in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God You'll note here that the Westminster Divines say that these laws are perpetual. That is, they continue because they are moral in nature. They continue no matter which dispensation you are in. I can use that word dispensation. Don't get worried that the confession uses it. Not a dispensationalist. But depending where you live in redemptive history, that, that is God's will for you. Okay, So whether you live in, you know, uh, 1000 BC in the days of David, or whether you live today in 2023 AD, we have the same moral obligation to God. Okay? The, those Ten Commandments were the same for David as they are for us, 
and, and nothing has changed with the coming of Christ in terms of our moral responsibility to live out those commandments. Now, by God's grace, because of the work of Christ, now that law has been written on your heart. I don't want to suggest that there's been no redemptive historical uh, movement or improvement since David's time. That law is now written on your heart. Um, it is no longer just codified in stone by the finger of God, but now God is applying it by His Spirit to your life. But the, the moral requirement is still the same. And that's why the Westminster Divines say that that law is perpetual. Okay, It is ongoing today. <clears throat> I think some of our friends in other denominations, they get nervous about this because they think you're, you're bringing in some kind of legalism. This is, it is not legalism. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ uh, and you love Christ with all your heart and you are trusting in Him alone for your justification, you're trusting in Him for salvation, you're trusting in Him for that 100% obedience that you need to stand before God, the question is, now that you've received Jesus as that Savior of yours, how do you live out a life of obedience to Him as a Lord? And what you do, Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So that if we love God, we want to keep these commandments. We're not trying to sneak in self-righteousness. We're trying to live out love towards God and neighbor, as God would have us, as people who have been redeemed and forgiven and justified. And so this is what is commonly called the third use of the law of God. The third use of the law of God. Well, you say, Pastor, what's the other two? Well, <laughs> we, we haven't gotten there, but the, the Westminster Divines tell you, number one, it shows the righteous and holy character of God. All right, The first use of the law of God is that you see the, the righteous character of God in the law. Every time you study the law, you meditate upon the commandments of God, you think about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. You're learning about who God is. And, and what he expects of you. The second thing that the law does is it, it look, it, it's like a, boys and girls, have you gone to the dentist or the doctor and you got an x-ray? You ever hurt your arm and they, they put, made you put your arm here and they took a picture of the arm? You know, and then the doctor, you know, do they still do that or do they do it on a computer? I don't know. But they put it up there and, and you can see your bone and you're like, ooh, look at that nasty little crack in my arm bone there. Um, what the, the, the law of God also is like an x-ray machine. Or maybe you, you put the stuff in your mouth and uh, the dentist thing goes around your head and you know, they take pictures of your teeth and then you can see you know, your teeth. And, and your smile is not so pretty, is it, in the x-rays? But anyway, you, you can see it. And, and that's what the law of God does. It, it goes and it looks inside. And, and it, it, it reveals uh, that we are sinners and that we've got problems inside ourselves. And so it trains us, it teaches us that we need Jesus Christ. The, the, Paul says in Galatians that the law becomes a tutor under Christ. And, and it, it teaches us, it's like the after-school tutor, you know, who sits you down and says, now look, you got some problems in this subject here. And we need to, we need to fix this problem. And, and the way you do it is, First of all, you acknowledge it's a problem, and then secondly, you go to Christ 
for the problem. So that's the first. The first is the righteousness of God is revealed. The second is that it shows that we're sinners. And then the third use of the law is once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you, you, like a train, it needs tracks to run on. The Christian life needs some kind of rail system. Um, the train isn't going to go very far, boys and girls, is it, if there are no tracks? I don't know if any of y'all ever have trains that go around the Christmas tree, but, you know, you go too fast, it falls off the tracks, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, the, 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 the tracks are there to keep the train running on course in, in the right direction. That's what the law of God does for us. It, it, it helps us here to live out that life. But we, we do have to acknowledge that while there, the law, the moral law of God, has all of those functions for us, there are laws within the law of God, though, that have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ in, in, in other ways and therefore are abrogated for us today. Now, what are those uh, two ways? Number one is the ceremonial laws, and those would be the laws, anything that pertained to uh, washings, uh, laws that may have pertained to uh, holiness, dietary laws, anything about cleansing, anything about blood. Um, those kinds of laws were always pointing to Jesus Christ, and by Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, those laws have been fulfilled. So, for example, in the Old Testament, um, you could eat fish, but there were two qualifications. It had to have, you could eat stuff from the sea, but it needed fins. Okay, that was number one. Got, need, needs, to have, needs to have fins, but it needs to have scales too. Okay, so you catfish lovers out there, sorry, that was off the menu back then, okay? Because, you know, catfish, they have fins, but what don't they have? They don't have the scales, do they? They got this hide on them. Um, you know, animal could chew the cud and had to have a split hoof, all right, um, if, if it was going to be considered clean. So a rabbit chews the cud, but it doesn't split the hoof. A pig splits the hoof, doesn't chew the cud. So those are unclean animals, all right. A camel, unclean, all right. So the, the people of God were to learn by these dietary laws about the holiness of God and, and that they were a people separate un, unto God. With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, these laws, the ceremonial laws, the laws pertaining to blood and washings and dietary laws have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ so that now, for example, when you get to the book of Acts, we read that all foods are declared clean. So uh, Peter sees a vision on his roof in Acts chapter 10 and all these unclean animals, all the things he wasn't allowed. There's the catfish, there's the shrimp, there's the pig, you know, he's alligator. He sees all these things uh, that he's not allowed to eat. And, and the voice from heaven says, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no, I haven't touched that, Lord, ever in my life. I'm, that's, I'm not eating that. And God says to him, Peter, that which God has cleansed, thou shalt no longer call unclean. So that... He was telling Peter, and it was more than just food. Remember, there's an interpretation to that vision later, that they were not to call Gentiles 
who believed in Christ unclean. That was the, one of the real lessons that was to be learned. And so Peter, when he is invited by the centurion to come to the house, he has no qualms about it. And, and when he goes to Cornelius' house, he, he goes and he eats with them and preaches the gospel to them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, just as uh, the disciples did on the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus was teaching the church very early on that some of these laws are ceremonial in nature, but now that Christ has come and fulfilled uh, their purpose, those have gone away. Now, the third type of law, in addition to moral and ceremonial, are the judicial laws. This has become somewhat of a controversy due to theonomy in the last uh, several decades. But what our confession teaches is this, that the, the judicial laws were given to the state of Israel for a time while that was a, a political state and that they have ceased uh, with the state of Israel except for what we call the general equity thereof. So if you look at section 4, it talks about the judicial laws here, and it says, to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people. Now, well, I'll, I'll save that comment later. Not obligating any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. And you say, Pastor, I don't know what that means. Simply stated, it means this. There, were, there are laws that you read. So, you know, for example, um, let's take the man who he picks up sticks on the Sabbath day he, and, and God tells them through Moses, you know, he must die. The man must die. He's broken the Sabbath. So we have these judicial laws that are given to the state of Israel as the people of God, showing that they are a distinct nation. What are we to do with these laws? The Westminster divines are, are quite clear. They say that these laws were for Israel. Christ has come, uh, has fulfilled. The, the, the nation of Israel today is not in covenant. Let me say that again. The nation of Israel today is not in covenant in the way it was in David's day and Solomon's day. Remember, in, in David and Solomon's day, Israel was in covenant with God as the Messiah king had not yet come. And, and, and it was typified in the kings and that they were a redemptive nation, a, a redemptive um, covenantal nation unto God. That has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that anyone who believes in Christ is now a part of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is composed of genuine believers in Jesus Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. So we have to understand that, that the, what we today call Israel um, is, a, is a modern political state and that the land would had always been promised to the Jews based on repentance and faith. So we're dealing with something entirely different today than what we see and read of in our Old Testament. That the church uh, now takes up that role, if you will, as Israel. We are the Israel today. We have been engrafted into the nation 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Branches have been broken off so that you might be engrafted in. Take heed lest, you know, God who did not spare the natural branch doesn't spare you. That we, we have to recognize we have been brought in. We were once the strangers to this nation. We were once aliens. We were once far off. But now God has brought us in. And so this nation of God's people is now in many nations, if I can put it that way. This nation of Israel is now all over the world. Now, I say that to say um, this, that the judicial laws, therefore, that were given in, by Moses, uh, through Mo- well, let me say by God, through Moses, that's a better way of putting it, given to the people of God, served a temporary redemptive historical function. That function has been fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, those laws have been abrogated except for the general equity. Now, here is where it gets interesting. (laughs) What does that little phrase mean, general equity? Well, I think what it means is that it's speaking about the general principles behind those laws. Let's take a law. Let's just let's take the one uh, that we often take, and and that's that that you have to build some kind of what in the Old Testament in the NAS they call it a parapet. We might call it a railing uh, around your roof. All right. So uh, most of us don't have flat roofs today. Okay, most of you are not going to entertain company on the roof anymore. So does, does your roof literally need a, a fence around it? Well, no, probably not. But um, you built a deck, okay, behind your house. Does the deck need a railing? Yes, absolutely. The deck needs a railing. That's what we mean by general equity, meaning that we do need to look at the principle. What was the principle of that judicial law in the Old Testament. It was to keep you and your family and everybody who you showed hospitality to safe at your house. You were to, it was was an expression, a judicial expression of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Right? It was an expression of the commandment that you shall value life and you will take the necessary precautions to protect that life. Boys and girls, let me tell you a story. Many years ago, I uh, served for a few weeks in Uganda as a missionary, and I was walking with my group um, through Kampala. Now, they don't have all the nice street lights that you might have where we live, and even when they do have them, uh, they don't run the electricity all the time in Uganda, at least they didn't in the 90s, uh, like that you can count on generally here. So we're walking down a sidewalk, and I am, I am talking to somebody, a friend of mine, Right here next to me, uh, no farther than this post here, we're walking down the sidewalk, and suddenly, boom, I'm gone. I'm in a hole. And I thought, what in the world did that? And you, have, you have these thoughts like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm in a dark place. And uh, what in the world? What had happened was that there was this giant manhole, and they didn't cover it up. Now, you would never get away with that in this country. There were no barriers around it. There was no railing. They just left it open. 
And so somebody wandering in the middle of the night down the sidewalk in Kampala, the hat falls right into it. In fact, my friend took me back to it during the daytime and showed me what I had fallen into. And I tell you, it was the grace of God when I looked in there that I didn't twist even an ankle. Uh, you know, so thank the Lord for that. Anyway, when we were traveling home, we got to spend one day in London on our flight back, and we were walking down a sidewalk in, in London, and we came upon a manhole that had barriers around it. So we took a picture of me going like this over the manhole in London and sent it to my friend in Uganda. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to put up protection. Now, that's general equity of God's law, and we want that. And so it is important that we study the, the laws of the state of Israel for that very reason, for that very purpose, um, that they are instructive uh, for us. They are a help to us. Um, does that mean that we, we are, in some sense, bound to these judicial laws, that it is our obligation to take these judicial laws and plant them on all the nations? I, the, the, the Reformed faith is divided on this issue. I am on the side that I do believe that there is that principle of within general equity that nations uh, may develop laws according to general revelation. That is, that these laws in Israel are not binding upon every other nation. That is, that all the nations of the earth are not supposed to uh, take the laws just as they are written and apply them. Um, I think that we are supposed to see a redemptive historical development in Christ through these laws, that these laws had a redemptive historical purpose fulfilled in Christ, but that these laws still are useful for us uh, and, and may be applied to the particular needs of that particular nation. You know, you've got to realize not all nations have the same sins culturally. And I'm not saying that nation, there are nations without sins, but some nations, just like any you know, family uh, or any individual, may have a proclivity to certain sins. So some nations may need to address certain sins more severely than other nations do, Okay. And for that other nation, it may be another sin that needs to be addressed more severely. And that, there, that, that God does allow, I believe, wisdom for the civil magistrate to make those distinctions. And we can talk about that more afterward if you'd like. But um, all that to say, it is, it is, I think, a little bit more complicated than uh, often is, is portrayed in, in some of the theonomic literature, in my opinion. I have friends who are theonomists. I hug theonomists, but I'm not, <laughs> uh, I'm not in agreement. I, and I'll say this. I, I don't really find theonomists um, speaking in the way, you know, in, that the confession seems to, um, you know, the theonomist just does not seem to emphasize the first part of section four. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, Period. That does not seem to be emphasized by our theonomic friends. Not obligating any other now. Let me just say that again. Not obligating any other now. 
That sounds a lot different than a thesis that I've read where it is obligating everybody everywhere now. Um, let's, let, let's let close with section seven here real quickly. Um, the Westminster Divines sum up this chapter. Neither are they forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Here's the good news, that the commandments that uh, we do have that are binding upon us morally, God through the gospel has given us this tremendous help. One, he has broken the dominion of sin in your life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have this going for you. Number one, that addiction to sin has been broken. Okay, You are now free in Jesus Christ. That dominion is no longer tyrannizing you, whereas before only you could sin. Now, God by his grace has broken that dominion. Now, thereby, he is also by his spirit enabling you to do those things which are pleasing in his, in his um, sight. You are able, as a Christian, to please God. And I want you to hear that. The work of Jesus Christ breaks the dominion of sin in your life, and that which you do as one in faith, seeking to obey God, that even though you don't do it perfectly, that is still pleasing to God, because it is also covered by the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it is possible. I just finished last week uh, R.C. Sproul's little book, Pleasing God. And, and I think because as, as believers, we, we want to be careful not to fall into a, a self-righteousness, a self-justification where we're seeking you know, by our own obedience to you know, uh, justify ourselves. We're not saying that. But we are saying that having believed in Christ, having been justified, we can do those things which are pleasing to God.